All right, church, we need, um, we need a little practice on, on something. Um, we're, we're, we're sounding a little bit soft and timid when just the phrase is, thanks be to God, right? I mean, we should be excited about the Word of God, right? So when we say, this is the Word of God, yeah, now that's a lot better. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to close out the chapter today. I mean, we began in chapter 5, verse number 1, and that's all I covered. And so now I have a very ambitious goal of covering the last 13 verses of this chapter. I, I think we'll be able to, to do it today. Having just made his observation about foolish worshipers, the preacher has now left the temple and he returns his attention to the governmental leaders. And he says in um, verse number 8, he tells the readers not to be surprised by the shocking behavior of their political leaders. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. These governmental officials were in violation of the law, actually. Rather than helping those that were in need, they were focused upon helping themselves. And the remarkable thing about this is the fact that the preacher says to them, don't be shocked at the sight. In other words, don't be surprised. Oppression and injustice exist at every level of society. Now, this doesn't excuse unrighteousness. It's simply being realistic about what one can expect to experience in the life that we live. And so it was Martin Luther who once said, unless there is some Solomon to exhort and console him, government crushes the man extinguishes him, utterly destroys him. And so his takeaway in verse number 8 is, don't be surprised if your leaders are corrupt and focus more upon themselves than they are on helping others. And then we get to verse number 9. Verse number 9 is extremely difficult to interpret. Let, let me read it for you first. It says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Full disclosure, I will tell you that for me, this has been the most problematic of all verses up to this very point. When I, when I try to wrestle through the text and what is it trying to convey to us, and when I take this verse and I look at other major translations, how they rendered the verse, or I'll look at some trusted biblical scholars and how they interpret the, the verse. What I come to see is that nobody agrees on it. Some see verse number 9 as being something negative. Others see it as being something positive that's being attempted to be said here. I've come to the conclusion that the general idea seems to be that in spite of the corruption that exists within our government, it is still better to have an organized government 
to have a king on its throne. It's still better to have an organized government than it would to have no government and total anarchy. Sure, there will be some, some dishonest individuals who may practice corrupt things. There may be, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, corrupt politicians who benefit greatly through their own selfish decisions. Even the best governments are far from perfect. As long we, as we live in this world, then we will see that there will be people who will attempt to buy their way into power. There will be some that will use their position for personal gain or family protection. There will be some that will manipulate the system for their own advantage. And so rather than looking to the government to solve our problems, we need to acknowledge that even the best of rulers will fall short of perfection. Therefore, our hope is not in our political leaders or a political process Our hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so in verse number 8 and 9, the preacher's been talking about wealth and poverty from a a national scale. But beginning in verse number 10, he begins to bring things down to a personal level. Which means that our, our political leaders aren't the only ones who will tend to strive for more and more or for their personal gain. Sometimes that temptation distracts many of us. And so beginning in verse number 10 to the end of the chapter, uh, he, he's going to give us a series of warnings about the danger and the vanity of loving money and wealth. He says the first problem for living for money, the first problem is you'll never have enough. Verse number 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity, meaningless, without substance. The acquisition of wealth does not and cannot produce within someone that lasting satisfaction or give them the, the, the sense of fulfillment in life. At one point in his life, it was John D. Rockefeller who once said in response to the question, the question was, how much money was enough? In his response, he quipped, if you know it, he said, Just a little bit more. Never satisfied. Always longing. It's a modern day example that proves that no matter how much we might have, a person will still be hungry and striving after more. They'll struggle against the desire to gain and attain as much as they possibly can. Please understand that the preacher's focus here is not upon the object of what is desired. His focus is upon the source from which that desire comes. In other words, the problem is not money in and of itself. 
No, the problem is a heart matter. You can love money and have a lot of it. You can love money and have very little of it. The issue isn't how much you have or how little you have. No, the issue is a matter of the heart. Do you love and desire the gift more than you do the giver of that gift? He's going to come back to this concept and the challenge for us to be content with what we have. And that's a big challenge. Because if we're not careful, if we don't guard ourselves and protect ourselves against it, we'll fall into that trap. We'll fall into that mindset that says, we got to get more, obtain more, 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 more. When the challenge for us is to be satisfied and content with the blessings that God gives unto us. Many, many, many years ago, uh, the, the, uh, the church was swept away with this concept in this Bible study that was the, the prayer of Jabez. You remember that? That, that phenomenon that was, Lord, give me, you know, increase my territory, give me more wealth, give me all of this. And, and of course, the, the, the Western church gravitates to that prayer because we're a consumer-driven society, right? That we just want to take more, 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 building the American dream. Dream You can have as much as you work for and strive for. And that prayer resonates with people. Never have I come across a book, a bracelet, a wall hanging, uh, a knitting pattern, a, 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 a t-shirt, whatever we do, right? Never have I come across the prayer of Agor. Proverbs chapter 30. I'll wait for you to get there. Proverbs chapter 30. Oh, the prayer of Jabez resonates with a lot of us. But the prayer of Agor, powerful, significant. Proverbs chapter 30. Picking up in verse number 7. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me, and then give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse number 9 says, That I not be fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Here's the thought. Rather than always craving and striving after more, we have been invited to be satisfied with what we have. And that satisfaction comes from the source. And that's from God. We're satisfied with what we have because we're satisfied and confident in the God who gives us the gifts that we receive. And so the first problem that he identifies with living for money is the problem that when you live for money, you never have enough money. Like John D. Rockefeller, you'll always be striving for a little bit more. The second problem is that other people will try to take it away from you. Verse number 11, he said, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? 
So the phrase, those who consume them, refers to some way or another the people that consume our wealth. Don't know if this is a negative or this is a positive, right? So, so who are, are the people that consume our wealth? Well, there's several examples. You can look at from verses 8 and 9. It might be in the form of an oppressive government who tries to take your wealth through taxes and tariffs and, and all of those regulations. Maybe and that's who's uh, trying to cut into your wealth. Or maybe it's a little bit more friendly than an oppressive government. Maybe it's referring to our own children and family. You know, those hungry mouths that gather around your table expecting you to feed them? Maybe, maybe that's it. Or maybe it's the, it's the people who are in legitimate, legitimate need. And they come to us seeking help and assistance, right? The point is, no matter who they are, the more you have, the more other people will try to get a hold of that which you have. And so the second problem is that other people will try to take it from us. The third problem of, of living for, for money is that it will keep us up at night. It produces a restless spirit. Look at verse number 12. It says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. So as a general rule, people who work hard all day are ready for a good night's sleep. Whether they've had a good meal or they have little to, to nothing to eat, they'll be tired enough because of their labor, they'll be tired enough to Go right to sleep. In other words, refreshing sleep is a blessing of manual labor. But the rich man, the rich man does not enjoy the benefit of a good night's sleep. Oh, he might be able to have a satisfied stomach, but he cannot have true peace of mind. Usually it is the hard worker who gets the best night's sleep. The rich on the other hand, they have little sleep because they have much worry. Much worry produces little sleep. And so far the preacher has been talking about the vanity of having a lot of money. But in verses 13 and 14, he transitions from talking about having the money to the vanity of losing money. Look at verse number 13. He says, there's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. So here we see the fourth problem of living for money. And the fourth problem is that what is here today may be gone tomorrow. In fact, he calls this reality a grievous evil. Uh, what that means, it literally means it makes him sick even to think about such evil and he, he gives us an example to show us what this actually looks like. And verse number 14 is the example of this reality. In verse number 14, he says, When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, 
then there was nothing to support him. In other words, it makes him sick to think of the father who risked his wealth in an attempt to just get a little bit more. He, he risked his wealth only to lose it all on a bad investment. It is a grievous evil to realize that what is here today may be gone tomorrow. Be very careful on where you put your energy and your attention and your focus upon. Which leads us ultimately to the fifth problem. The fifth problem for living for money is the reality is that we can't take it with us. Verse 15 says, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. This also makes me sick to even think about. Exactly as the man is born, thus he will die. So what advantage, so what is the advantage of, to him who, who toils for the wind? Who, who strives after the thing that can't be caught, right? Does this language sound familiar? It should. Right? If you're familiar with the scriptures, just even at a minimum, the language of these verses should remind us of, of a story that's well known unto us all, the story of Job himself. When Job lost everything that he had, his family, his, his wealth, all that was left behind was, was him and his, his wife. And he says in Job chapter 1, verse number 21, he said, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There will come a time when all that we have worked for will have no value and will have no benefit. The tragic reality is one that we all will face. And the tragic reality is the reality of our mortality. Which means every single one of us, unless the Lord comes before, every single one of us will face our own death. We're all going to die. Our time here in this world is limited. And so may you know that you were made for so much more than just this very brief moment of existence. We ought not to live for the here and now. Our focus should be upon eternity. Striving to live for the eternal things. So the preacher has carefully laid out the, the vanity of living for money. Ultimately, he says, when, you, when you're so greedy in life, it, it's meaningless. There's no value to it. Why? Because you'll never have enough. You'll always want more. What you have, other people are going to try to take. You'll be restless in sleep and lacking in peace. What, what, what's here today may very well be gone tomorrow. You're one bad investment away from losing it all. You're one bad investment decision made by somebody else losing it all. Right? 
So, so what you have cannot be taken with you when you die. And so he, he's going to summarize it all in verse number 17. Look at verse 17. He summarizes the, the pathetic picture of where greed will lead us in life. He says, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. In other words, the vanity of living for money, the vanity of greed, will lead a person to become a miserable individual. A person with much frustration, sickness, and anger. So, what's the answer? What's the alternative? If all of these things are bad, then what's the good? How are we to live? Well, in the closing verses of chapter 5, the preacher once again encourages us to be content with what we have, to enjoy the blessings that God chooses to give unto us. Look at verse 18. It says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. Notice right there, he already recognized and attributes that life and the benefits and the blessings of life are gifts from God. He says, for, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his life. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. The the preacher makes it clear that wealth is not inherently evil. If God chooses to bless someone with wealth and resources, then he blesses them for the glory of the Father. For His own glory. But if God chooses to to meet our needs on a day-to-day existence, if He chooses to meet our needs moment by moment, then He chooses to do so for His glory. See, the root of the problem is not money. The root of the problem is the heart and the mind of a person that desires the gift more than they desire the giver of those gifts. Without God, life, wealth, possession, without God, everything is meaningless and miserable. But with God, life has a purpose. There's a plan. Life has meaning. And so we must guard against the negative and the destructive attitudes that produce despair and ungratefulness in our lives. With confidence, as God's children, we know that we have a loving Father who will supply all of our needs. Therefore, be content. Trusting in the Father every day. We ought to live in confidence 
in the reality that we know that our Father he cares for us. We know every day that God is faithful and true. Every day He faithfully supplies our needs. Every day. Every day is a gift from God Himself. Every day is an opportunity for His children to show and to share the love and the grace of our Father. So both having things and enjoying things, both the possession of it and the enjoyment in them, both of that are gifts given unto us from our Father. Therefore, it is useless for us to worship the gift instead of the gift giver. You say it like this. When we focus more on the gifts than we do on the giver, then we're guilty of idolatry. When we accept His gifts, but complain in the process, don't like the way it looks, you want more or a different gift, when we accept His gifts, but we complain about them, then we're guilty of ingratitude. When we hoard the gifts when we refuse to share those gifts with other people, then we're guilty of indulgence. Therefore, may we live our lives with open ears to to hear the Word of God, open ears to, to receive His truth into our lives, but not just open ears, but may we live our lives with open hands. Open hands to allow God's blessings to come to us, and to flow through us to other people. Not clinging on to it. Not gripping on ever so tightly to, to how He has blessed us. But realizing that sometimes God gives us more than what we need to give us an opportunity so that we can share that into the lives of other people. The Apostle Paul If you want to turn there in Philippians chapter 4, teaches the same concept. That we might learn to be content in whatever circumstances that we face in life. Whether those are times of plenty or times of want. Apostle Paul understood that God is worthy to be praised in the midst of it all. In Philippians chapter 4, Picking up in verse number 12. I know how to get along with humble means. And I know, I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. And then here we get the, the t-shirts, the coffee mugs, the knitting, the cross-stitch patterns, everything. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And unfortunately, this is a verse that is sadly misunderstood or wrongly applied. One of the most frequently recognized verses 
of the Bible. And yet sometimes we, we just miss the mark in our understanding and application of it. I want you to understand that Paul's assertion that I can do anything, his assertion to do anything is controlled by the context of what he is speaking. Look back at it. Look at the context. Whatever circumstances he finds himself, and whatever extremes he may face, right? Whether he's experienced the abundance of wealth, or, or whether he is surviving through a season of desperation, right? Paul was content. He declares, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context is verse 12. He knows how to get along with humble means, and he also knows how to live in prosperity. I know what it's like to live poor, and I know what it's like to live in wealth. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, satisfied. I know the secret of going hungry, both of having an abundance and, and suffering need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was confident that he would be divinely strengthened and supported to do anything and everything that God has called him to do. That's the context. So can you be president of whatever? Can you be a professional athlete? That's according to the plan and to the will of God. Not in your own mantra that says, I can do it if I want to do it. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever God leads me to, I can have the confident assurance that he'll see me through. He'll supply all the needs. And I don't have to get angst about that. I don't have to get all worked up and distracted. I can live in confidence, content in knowing that my Father loves me, that He will provide for me, that He is always faithful and true. Don't get caught up in in the living for money, living for the temporary, with open ears and open hands. May we hear and receive God's Word into our lives. And may we live our lives understanding that the things that we receive are a blessing from the Father. And sometimes God blesses us so that we might be a blessing unto other people. So may we love the gift giver way more than the gifts that we receive in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this church for the joy of being able to gather together, to open it, to be challenged by it. And Father, in this time of response, I pray that your Spirit would guide and direct us in making decisions that would honor and please you. Father, may we understand that the folly of riches stand in contrast to the joy and peace that we experience in life as we submit and surrender all aspects of our lives unto the King of Kings. Father, I pray that we would submit and surrender everything unto Christ. 
God, help us. Help us to honor you as we seek to apply this truth to our lives today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.